With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education and president of Chatham University. I'm delighted to be here today with Nathan Graw, a well-known economist and expert on higher education, as well as a, a professor at Carleton College in Minnesota. Nathan, it's great to be with you today. It's a pleasure to join you. Uh, could we start by just telling us a little about your background, um, where you went to school and, and how you ended up deciding to become an academic and an economist? Sure. So I did my undergraduate work at St. Olaf College, uh, which just happens to be in the same town that I currently teach in, but across the river. And uh, I had a great mentor there, uh, Jenny Bourne, who uh, challenged me to think in new ways. And I really got hooked on economics that I always enjoyed math, but was more interested in applied problems. And so found my way to the economics department. I went off to the University of Chicago where I did my graduate work. And about three years in, Jenny wrote me having come over to Carleton in the meantime and said, we have a, a position for a visitor if you're interested. And my first thought was that doesn't seem particularly wise just as I start my dissertation. But uh, my wife and I decided that it was uh, the right calling. So I came here and have been here ever since. And um, yeah, I really started with questions. I was I was interested in intergenerational mobility, how parents and children's outcomes are related. And so my interest in higher ed sort of grew out of that, thinking about obviously higher education as a key component of how young people establish themselves in the job market. And so my, my interest in the topic started from that intergenerational perspective. And of, uh, I guess in, in my thinking, I'm still grounded in that intergenerational question of how backgrounds affect the future outcomes for children. That's that's wonderful background. I'm I'm curious before we go go on to that first very influential book you wrote, uh, building on that intergenerational work. Um, what what was it like being in the economics department at U of Chicago? Probably you know the in many ways the most well known um, department for both Nobel Prize winners, a lot of uh, of highly profile, including your field in in human capital with Gary Becker and whatnot. How did you find that as an environment? Yeah, it was incredibly stimulating. Um, the department lives up to its reputation as being uh, sort of a freewheeling place where uh, the seminars were intense, uh, no matter who was presenting. Um, but certainly as a student presenter, uh, you you really felt like you'd been through a workout by the time you got done with your 90 minutes. Um, but it was also just so terrific. I I remember going toward campus one morning in my second year, taking a labor economics course with Sherwin Rosen and just thinking, you know, here's, I'm, I'm in a small class with seven labor economists in the making and we're reading, 
you know, the greatest hits of labor economics. I mean, what's not to like about that? Every, every day was another discussion of another, you know, terrific groundbreaking paper. So it was, it was a really stimulating environment. Not just groundbreaking papers, but a lot of the people you're reading are actually there with you, right? Teaching. <laughs> there was a fair amount of that. There was. Yeah. Yeah. I, re I remember getting a sense. I, my first academic job was at Rand and one of the, uh, the economists there was one of Jim Heckman's grad students. And I remember some of the, the economic seminars where people barely got off the title slide. There were so many questions flying fast and furious. So I can imagine it was a, a really great grounding in terms of, of building a solid economics foundation. It was. And, you know, I think there are upsides and downsides to that approach of interrogation, right? I, we used to have the acetone slides. So you'd come in with your slide deck put together. And then by the end, you just got this mess of slides all over the floor. Um, <laughs> So I, I think, you know, I, I've come to appreciate the value of uh, what some might term a more humane uh, interaction in the seminar room. But I, I think there's room for both. Um, you know, at Chicago, there was uh, a deep, deep appreciation for the quality of ideas. So uh, if it, it was a little bit of a gladiator experience, but a gladiator I, uh, of ideas and I think there is value in that and the willingness to really test ideas and the the fact that somebody might be in the front of the room has a Nobel Prize didn't exempt them from, you know, serious uh, questioning. And I think that's uh, really important for higher education in general to remember that uh, that's what we're about. We're after the pursuit of, of better understanding and that requires being open to interrogation. Certainly one of the things we, we drill with our students, right, is you've got to be able to respectfully or sometimes not always that respectfully disagree and challenge without making it personal, right? But be, be able exactly. to really debate ideas. So, so yeah, And some ideas, yeah. you know, some ideas obviously don't um, stand up. And, and right. so it's, it's not that any idea is equally good, but rather that um, I've, I'm open to hearing ideas and some of them I might readily dispatch with and others I might have to engage a little bit longer before dispatching. But the fact that I'm going to dispatch your idea doesn't mean that I am not going to contend with it. So so you've already shared your broad area of being interested in intergenerational mobility and how that's related to higher ed. Can, can you talk about the specifics that led you to, to write demographics and the demand for higher education? There obviously already was a fair bit of data out there related to, to this, uh, the, some of what you rely on from Witchy and others, but, but you took that to another level and, and obviously the book has had a huge impact. So just curious sort of what led to it and, and, and what, what is the impact been for you and, and, and your career since then? Yeah. So I, I started thinking about this topic when I was actually in, uh, the Dean's office, I served as associate Dean of the college for three years from 2009 to 2000, I guess it was 12 when I came out and, so this is right on the heels of the Great Recession. Um, a lot of budget cutting had been done in the spring before I entered the office, but more budget cutting had yet to do while I was in the office. And so there was a lot of just, you know, nose to the grindstone. We have to cut student work budgets. We have to cut operating budgets. We have to cut capital budgets and a lot of energy there. And then we got a new president who, not surprisingly, engaged us in a strategic planning exercise. And so 
we went from just focusing on can we get through the immediate problem to stepping back a bit and seeing the bigger picture. And that was the first time that I'd really been exposed to the witchy data that I'm sure most of your listeners are very familiar with. And I was charged with uh, leading a subcommittee in that strategic planning exercise, thinking about what our competition was doing and what does that mean we need to do. And our group did look at the witchy data and the changing uh, landscape for projected high school graduates. And I remember having kind of two both important thoughts. The first was, wow, this seems really important. Um, even in 2012, we could see the northeast quadrant of the country kind of slipping away due to low fertility that had been going on for a while. But on the other hand, was it really important for Carlton? That was less clear. And it was you know, a little bit anxious to make suggestions to shift the long-range plans of the college on the basis of merely headcounts or counts of high school graduates, knowing that Carleton doesn't serve a representative swath of, of American higher ed. Um, and, and in fact, I don't, I don't think any institution, even the Harvards and, and so on, while they might be more geographically diverse, they're still geographically inflected. And they're certainly uh, inflected by different uh, demographic markers, uh, parent background, and so on. And so it was really out of a desire to make better use of the messages that Witchy was making to come to a better understanding. Did, did I have to pay attention to what Witchy was saying? Could I ignore what Witchy was saying and say, well, that might be what's going on with the bigger market, but what's going on with my submarket? That I really started thinking like, how, how could we try to parse this out a little bit and create different sub-indices, if you will, for what might happen at the different types of higher ed institutions? And obviously that ability to parse the data more closely, um, it made it really actionable, I think, for colleges around the country. I, I'm curious, as as that unfolded and you were asked to give talks and, and uh, around the country on this, what, what, what was sort of the most memorable reaction to the book or, or impact that it had that, that stick with you? You know, one, one or two examples. So for most part, I, I've had a selected uh, interaction with my audience, right? You get people invite me to speak if they look at these problems and say, this is something we need to address. Um, so I was really struck by how constructive and proactive higher education leadership was. And again, maybe I'm only seeing the select group that, that wants to take action, but we had a lot of smart people looking at some some serious challenges. Not surprisingly, I was traveling more to the Northeast quadrant of the country where the, the problems were both more immediate and more severe in the long run. But I saw a lot of campuses where faculty and staff and administrators were coming together and saying, okay, uh, this is a real challenge, but it's also surmountable. We can, we can take action to mitigate the effects and we can teach new students in new ways. We can improve student persistence so that a given pool of incoming students generates more registrations and enrollments, which ultimately is good for the students, but it's also good for the institution. Um, but I will say that, you know, there have been some emails with alumni of uh, institutions that were really struggling. I got one from somebody who wrote, you know, your book is being used as an argument to shut down my, my alma mater. And I thought, wow, okay. Um, well, A, I sure hope they're looking at other people like Witchy and so on. But it turned out to be in the Northeast. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't honestly know. In any given case, context matters so much. Um, some institutions have put themselves in situations that are uh, – challenging enough, even in an environment where we were seeing increasing enrollments, that when we start to see declining enrollments, it really is an existential problem. And, you know, I, I feel the pain that this alum was sharing. Um, I can only imagine if it was my alma mater that was considering closing up, those are painful, painful choices. Mm -hmm. And yet I think 
in some parts of the country, like in Vermont, where the the number of high school graduates are off by about a quarter, it's not surprising that we've seen a loss of four of the 20 private institutions there. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned that the start of this was informed by your role in the dean's office and the strategic plan that was starting at Carleton. How, how was it received back there? Obviously, in some ways, the message was reassuring because you're in that elite right. liberal arts segment that is is somewhat cushioned from these broader demographic trends. But did, did it did it lead to the college thinking in different ways about its strategy? I'm not sure that changed things, uh, in part because I think our leadership was pretty well attuned to these facts already. So what it did more was to confirm some planning that was already coming out of that strategic plan. So I, I have talked to President Poskanzer and then Dean of Admissions Paul Tibeto and now uh, his successor, Art Rodriguez. We were shifting, for instance, already. We are a participant in the Posse program. Uh, we had a Posse in Chicago. And obviously, if you look at the demographics, Illinois is not the future. Uh, and we shifted to Houston. And part of that was obviously that we were trying to diversify, but we could diversify with Chicago students just as well. We also wanted to increase applications coming out of Houston and Texas more broadly. And it seems that that experiment is paying off, that we're getting more applications, not just uh, through the Posse program, but also more broadly as Carleton's name recognition expands. We were also... Um, planning to shift toward the Pacific West, uh, where we've had a toehold. Uh, we've, relative to our peers, been a little bit less dependent on the Northeast market. So we were already moving in directions. And I think you noted the, the possibility that places like Carleton can say, well, you know, your work says we don't have to worry so much. And I think there's been a little bit about, of that. And, and I think it's, it's a little unnerving to me because I think we also have to remember we're in a market together. So yes, the people who've had demographic markers of being interested in Carleton are on the rise. Um, but that doesn't mean that they have to continue to want to come here. We saw in the Varsity Blues scandal, I think, evidence that America's attachment to selective higher ed is a bit tenuous right now. There are people who are calling the question of, is it worth it? And what is the meaning of you know, the cultural elites, uh, educational elites? And I think we have to be careful that we don't look at this and say, well, you know, so everything's good for us and it's just the rest of the market that's going to suffer. When... Um, Institutions that are in those national and regional situations see that they're experiencing a shrinking pool. I'm going to bet they're going to get more competitive. They're going to get more competitive with financial aid. Uh, Carleton does not offer uh, merit-based aid, for instance. And if those institutions get more aggressive with pricing and, and merit-based aid, we're going to have some uncomfortable conversations with families who say, I was willing to buy the argument that Carleton was worth, say, $20,000 more. But now you're asking me to buy the argument it's worth $30,000 more. And that's a different argument. So, you know, I think places like Carleton are a little bit uh, privileged, but we're not as privileged as those projections suggest because the projections don't have to be predictions. Right. Um, I think you've already alluded to it somewhat um, in terms of some of the reactions you got to the first book, but can you talk a little more about what led you to write the Agile College and, and you know, uh, particularly the sort of the structure of the book, which I think of really as, as two distinct parts, right? There's the updating of of the data from before and then there's the the really interesting new part of thinking about creative solutions yeah that's exactly right and you know the first part is basically we have some new data sets we know that some things had changed in the patterns of college going uh, hispanic matriculation rates in particular have been on the rise so um how much and and in what ways does that alter things uh, so we can update the forecast but the real motivation was that second half of the book as i mentioned i'd seen 
interesting, proactive, constructive things that higher education leaders were engaged in. And I'd had conversations with others asking, what can we do? And so trying to put these two audiences together, uh, sharing some of the stories from one campus and bringing the other. And the other is that response of, um, you know, so your book paints a dire picture and, uh, of higher ed, and therefore we should close up shop. Um, while I think that there are some institutions for whom that may inevitably be the case, uh, it shouldn't be many. Uh, America has a wonderfully diverse higher education landscape, and we have diverse students with diverse student needs. Uh, and so, you know, your institution and mine serve slightly different students and slightly different. There, there's some overlap in our missions and so on, but it is a wonderful thing that you are not Carleton and we are not Chatham. So. Yeah. When we lose institutions, we are losing some of that diversity of the system that means some students won't have their needs met in quite the same way. And so I really, I, I, I don't want people reading this. Uh, I saw a Washington Post story where somebody described the mid-2020s in higher ed as the apocalypse. And I thought, well, that's a really unhelpful analogy. Um, if it's the apocalypse, just throw in the towel. We're done here. Um, and I don't think it is an apocalypse. I think it's a distinct challenge. And yes, we've come out of decades of growing interest in higher ed that has made it a golden era, if you will, for higher ed. And I, I, you know, I do grieve the shift to a, a, a time period where it might not be so easy. Um, but it's not the apocalypse. And we do see all of these examples of institutions meaningfully grappling with the problem. And we need to grapple with the problem so that we can better serve our students and so that we can set our institutions on paths for, say, another 150 or 200 years of serving American students. And so the motivation there was to take the things that I was seeing that were so exciting and saying, look, here's, here's a different, um, to borrow a phrase from Hans, Hans Rosling, a, a possibilist view, right? That it doesn't have to be that bad. I, I, I have evidence to be optimistic, it's not Pollyanna, it's not to say that we're going to just ignore the challenges, but it is going to recognize that we don't have to just accept what's coming. We can adapt. That's great. I, I wanted to ask you about a few specific things just to clarify for the listeners in terms of some of the interesting data and findings in the book. Um, you, you mentioned that one piece of good news from it was that the projected total decline that had been in the first book of 15% from the peak to 2025 that that was now down to 10%. And, and I wanted to understand what was it that led to that, that, you know, with the new data becoming available or whatever, that, that reassessment there. Yeah. So there are two parts of it. The, the smaller part of it is that, okay, we do have a, a change in college going patterns. And so as we're seeing this shift in the composition of the American population toward more Hispanics, well, that's not been a group that has been well attached to higher ed in the past. Um, that one is, is the primary mover. Um, well, when you update the data and say, but these people are going to higher ed, at, at higher rates. You don't see quite the same consequence of the shifting po population. There was also in the, um, in the American Community Survey data from the Census Bureau that I used, for the cohort that would come of age in 2029, there seemed to be something uh, a bit anomalous with the one particular uh, data set. And so when I moved to the more updated data set, I didn't see quite as much change that seems to have been you know, something due to, in essence, sampling error. Um, so, you know, 2029 doesn't look quite as bad. If you look at uh, 27 and 28, okay, they also don't look quite as bad. But the, the biggest uh, issue seems to be with sort of just a, a sampling issue uh, that goes away when we have more data. Um, you know, and so on one hand, fortunately, that's way out in the forecasts. 
unfortunately, it's also the last data point, and so it can catch your eye and make you you think things that aren't there. So the updates end up being a little bit more sanguine, but they also point out that the the period of low fertility extends a little further. And now, you know, we just heard uh, the CDC is reporting that wow, okay. You can count on low numbers of students at least until 2038, and I'll bet you the pandemic is not going to make things better. So now we're out to 2039 yeah. before we can even begin to talk about improvement. So the the updates are, you know, they give and they take. On the other, on one hand, it's not quite as bad by the end of the 2020s. On the other hand, we now have really locked in low levels of fertility for a longer period of time. Right. Um, and I wanted to ask you too. There, there was a. A comment on page 27 mentioned the number of college attenders from 1819 out to 3334 is projected to fall by 5% versus a 2% decline in the number of young adults. And I was just trying to understand that that disparity. So why is there a difference between the, yeah. the college going versus the population as a whole? So um, most of this has to do with the, you know, we've got shifting compositions within the population. And so if we have a shift, um, for instance, that moves us away from people who are in the college going group, then while the population might hold up, the college going doesn't hold up quite so well. Um, you know, if you put, if you put those differences in kind of the broader context, it's probably not the biggest, um, you know, we're talking about a percentage point or two. Yeah. It's not the biggest deal, but on the other hand, it's a good reminder that okay, composition does matter. It's not just how big your pool is, but who's in right. the pool. Yeah, and and you mentioned that one of the things in in the earlier point that was more encouraging was that what we were seeing was improvements in college attendance by the Latinx uh, student population, which is is a good thing. But is it that? that's improving from a lower base. And so as they're a higher percent of the population, it, it, that, it's those sort of the interaction of those two. Exactly. Uh, so they're getting very, very close to achieving matriculation rates that meet the national averages. Um, so Hispanic Americans have made tremendous gains in the last two decades. Uh, we still see that they're disproportionately attending two-year colleges. So if you think about institutions like yours and mine, there's still work to be done. But the surge, I was initially when I was looking at the Hispanic surge, I thought, is this just a surge in two-year enrollments? And the answer is no. In fact, the surge is greater in the four-year sector, but it's the public four-year sector where we've seen the surge in Hispanic enrollments. The private four-year sector hasn't, it's increased, but it hasn't surged in the same way. Um, now you can look at that one of two ways. You can say that's disappointing for those of us at private four-year institutions. Or you can say, hey, this means there's great opportunity. These students are college-bound and they're four-year college-bound. We just haven't found a way to make our institutions uh, a true home to them yet. But if we can work on that problem, we too can benefit um, by this, yes, a shift in the population toward a group that we haven't served in the past, but it's, a, it's a, one of the few groups that offers pop possibilities of growth. So the type of Houston strategy you identified with Posse is a, you know, a very proactive way to say, how do we build a critical mass of students that you know, can show that we are exactly. a great place for these students? Exactly. And, you know, obviously, as you know, it's not just about getting them here, but then we also have to ask, and what do we need to do to change ourselves right. so that this becomes a place that really does serve you well? And, and for that matter, I mean, often we think too often about how do we need to change to address maybe things where, where students have needs. They do have needs, but they also have, they have terrific assets. How do I need to change how I teach in the classroom? to leverage the new assets that are in my classroom because I have new students in my classroom. 
Um, so it's, it's in part, how do we reach those students? And then it's also in part, how do we change who we are to make our campuses, you know, really take advantage of these new students in our midst? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm curious, the, the second part of the book is a, not just a different in terms of, you know, what it's trying to do in modeling the solution, but it's a very different approach as a researcher. So, so you're really capturing, uh, stories of, of, models of different strategies, but you know, you're very comprehensive in, in what you've done in the data and trying to get the best national picture. How did you go about identifying what you wanted to feature and profile in that second part of the book as models or as individual cases? Yeah, well, so first I'll say, you know, why the different method? And that's just because I don't have the expertise. People would ask me, so, you know, what can we do? Um, you know, and the honest answer is, gosh, I'm not an admissions person. Um, and I'm not a student success person, uh, but there are a bunch of great thought leaders out there who do that work. And so rather than my try to, you know, really do poorly what they do professionally, um, I sought to interview folks who were doing things. And, you know, the, the, the selection wasn't intended to be representative. I don't even know what a representative selection of institutions would be. Um, but I did want it to be very diverse to reflect the many different contexts for higher ed. So I tried to reach out to two-year institutions and four-year institutions, public and private, uh, single sex and co-ed, and uh, those that are um, more technical and those that are more liberal arts, uh, the large and the small, uh, secular and religiously affiliated, trying to capture as many of the different, um, you know, in essence, anytime I saw an opportunity to talk to somebody from an institution type that I hadn't really either experienced myself or talked to in the past, I thought this is a great opportunity. Um, I, I was invited by Achieve the Dream to chat um, to their group. And one of the initiatives Achieve the Dream has worked on is bringing tribal colleges together. And I thought, wow, I, I know a little bit about tribal colleges because in Minnesota, there are some um, that are serving a really important role in the Minnesota higher education landscape, but I only know them from afar. And so, you know, I thought this is a great opportunity to learn how tribal colleges and universities are working together on problems that are different from the ones that Carleton faces and yet the same. Um, they're, they're trying to figure out how do we serve our students more effectively and promote student success. And that's the same conversation we have here. And in that case, it was an example where they were um, collaborating to pool data and to use assessment to motivate institutional improvement. Well, that's a very familiar conversation at Carleton, though obviously the way it played out on those campuses was inflected by their context. Um, so my goal was to just get as many different viewpoints um, with the understanding that you know, even though your and my institution are pretty similar, if, if we did some sort of coding classification, our contexts are distinct. And so you might actually find it more interesting and powerful to hear from the tribal colleges and universities than from Carleton because a particular aspect of the problem you're working on, your context aligned more with theirs than with Carleton's. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And I'm curious, that's a great example of, of looking in a context where you hadn't had a lot of prior knowledge. Were there other things that you found particularly surprising or enlightening in the research for, 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 that, for the book as a whole or, or that portion in, in the solutions? So one of the things that I, I, I saw even before I wrote the book, but it's, it's also visible in the book, is that many institutions are still very focused on this as a recruitment problem. Um, and, I, and I think it's not wrong to think about recruitment. I think uh, the recruitment office, the admissions department really does need to be on its A game for us to get through this well. And there are some really important things like expanding access out there to do in that area. So I don't mean to diminish the importance of those solutions, but you know, just basic back of the envelope calculations, if you see a decline of 10 to 15%, or if you're in the Northeast, maybe in your market, it's a 20% decline in the number of students, you have to ask yourself what kind of overall matriculation rate increase is necessary to offset the decline in the population. And the answer is, in many cases, just way too big to be believed. Um, yes, we should expand access. Yes, we should reach more students. But that alone is not going to solve the problem. And so, you know, I was, um, I'm a bit concerned that in higher ed, there's still a little bit too much reliance on the admissions department will solve this for us. When instead, maybe faculty and staff outside the admissions department need to be asking, how can the enrollment management functions within often admissions guide us, lead us in a conversation about how do we need to change a whole bunch of things. And that might mean academic programming. And we do see in the book examples of people who've, who've made that switch where they've at least begun to take campus-wide ownership of this problem rather than just saying, okay, recruiters, go out there and get me more students. Um, I think you know, that's where we're going to actually get the, the biggest bang for our investments here is, is by really thinking more transformationally. One of the things that you didn't talk about too much in the book, and I'm curious how you see it as playing out in terms of these overall market dynamics, is the, the, the demographic challenges we're seeing sort of coincided with a decline in the for-profit sector of higher ed. Um, you know, we saw a major consolidation there happening. Now, we've seen a lot of, of public and, and nonprofit universities moving into that space, but I'm curious how you sort of see the intersection of that with with the, the challenges posed from the demographics. Yeah, that's an astute question, um, but it also pokes me right in my blind spot, right? The for-profit sector. Um, I think part of what we've seen recently in the for-profit sector is sort of a natural shaking out. So um, we saw great growth in that sector uh, for a while when people recognized a new business opportunity. But as will happen in such cases, you get a bunch of people rushing in, and then a combination of things happen. One is you just have the natural shaking out of the market, um, but you also had regulatory reform because, boy, this is a, a new thing all of a sudden. And we saw the Obama administration take note and say there were some troubling things about how the profit, um, the, the business model was predicated on student loans. And so the, the public did have an interest. And with those regulatory reforms combined with just natural shakeout, we've seen 
a real uh, reduction in the number of institutions. But while we've seen a reduction in the number, we still see a large number of students, whether in person or online, uh, turning to the for-profit sector. And during COVID, we actually saw that that sector was the sector that that did best in this last uh, enrollment cycle. I suspect that's because they were disproportionately in the online space already. So they're well positioned to tap into what a pandemic will cause. Um, so, you know, I think the intersection for us all is to remember that that sector, while it has seen a shakeout, is not going away. Um, you have a lot of adult learners who find what the for-profit sector is offering to be desirable for various reasons. Uh, the online emphasis that a lot of the for-profits have taken is not going away. Um, and so when I think about, you know, I'll just speak for my own institution, um, I think that, and it intersects with COVID as well, is just a great reminder that if Carleton is going to succeed, we need to really deliver on what we put in our view book, right? We, we make a promise to students about the richness of this in-person residential experience. And I'm really optimistic for Carleton, so long as we continue to actually deliver that. If we start to cut corners, then I think it's pretty understandable that families and learners are going to say, you charge an awful lot of money for a diploma. And if that's all I'm getting, these for-profits have figured out how to do that really, really cheap. Um, so I think there's so much more to learning if it's, if it's done well, um, without taking away from the fact that I think there's a real role for um, institutions that serve adult learners and learners who might have to get a diploma while doing a job and they need a different, a different setup. But I, th I think there will be a demand for places that are more residentially focused, um, the traditional not-for-profit four-year experience. But we actually have to deliver that. And we have to be very careful as we're going forward because this new thing does exist now in a very present sense and can threaten to eat into our market if, if we don't actually deliver on what we promise. Um, one of the th things I want to ask you about was given your interest in intergenerational, one of the areas that I've really focused on here at Chatham, given the demographics of Pittsburgh and based on my prior experience at Rutgers, is thinking about entirely new markets demographically. So when I think about the, the group in the, in the country that has the most time, interest, and resources to devote to education, it's folks who are over 55. And we know a lot of those folks don't have enough saved for what their average life expectancy is. So there's a, a workforce component as well as a just a, a, a learning for its own sake component. I'm curious, did you think about the the sort of that as a as a new demographic market that that is very robust for these coming decades and and as a potential one for for helping some institutions? Yeah, well, certainly, if we look at at higher ed as a whole, we see the potential with the adult learner market. Um, before the pandemic, we had something like one hundred and sixty million people in the labor force. So when you see uh, the most recent CDC, a birth report and you realize that, wow, we seem to be missing about a half million, maybe three quarters of a million kids in a given cohort. Okay, that's a big problem. But you don't need much penetration into the adult learner market to, to more than offset the decline in the number of young people. So it's a tremendously rich opportunity. And you know, if you think about your own retirement portfolio, you probably hold some US stocks and some foreign stocks, and you're trying to diversify your risks. And there's something very similar going on in this case with a generational risk that what if this generation is shrinking? Or for that matter, what if the attitudes of this generation shift 
relative to higher ed or my kind of higher ed? Wouldn't I rather have more than one generation in my um, portfolio, so to speak? And so serving adult learners can be a way that institutions can create alternative revenue streams that aren't perfectly correlated in in their demand. So I, I think it is a, a promising place. I mean, obviously, it's part of how higher education got through the declining number of babies being born the last time it happened, which was, you know, we were experiencing in higher ed in the, I guess, around the, the early to mid 80s. And if you look at the enrollments, you actually do see that the number of traditional age enrollments did dip, just like you would expect with the decline in number of births following the baby boom. And yet higher education enrollments went up. And that was because higher ed recognized appropriately that it was necessary to change. And so some institutions are obviously well on their way toward serving adult learners, and maybe they don't have that lever to pull anymore. But for those institutions that have not yet pulled that lever, I think it's a reasonable question to ask is, is there a subset of the adult learner market that is not well served by the existing offerings for adult learners? I think most times we uh, see those adult learners being served right now in, in two-year and in technical programs. Um, okay, so if, if I'm an adult learner and I have those needs, I know where to go. Um, but we don't see as many programs currently designed for offering what maybe four-year liberal arts colleges have offered to the 18-year-olds in the past, being offered to the 45-year-old who's looking to retrain in a slightly different way. So I, I think it's an, an interesting area of, of you know, an example of expanded recruitment. We can think about access in terms of, say, economic or, or racial diversity, but here we're thinking about it in the age dimension. Another area that has really interested me, that when you look at a lot of other sectors which face a supply and demand imbalance, right, the, the way they deal with that is through consolidation, right? We've seen that in healthcare. We've seen it in, in all sorts of parts of manufacturing. Higher ed has not had nearly as much of a track record of successful merger and consolidation and strategic partnership. I'm curious, you know, as you were doing the research for this, were you surprised not to see more of that? Do you think we will see more of it now post-COVID? Um, we, we have some examples, but but not a whole lot to point to. Yeah, we do have some. Like you said, if, if we look at Georgia, for instance, that's sort of the poster child. But that's it's it's so the focal point because it is such the exception. And I guess now Pennsylvania's uh, talking Painfully about going down trying. the same path. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And we saw also with Connecticut, with the two-year schools, um, I think there are some things that do make it hard to accomplish. We saw with the Connecticut case that uh, the accreditors ultimately stepped in and said, well, not so fast. And that slowed the process way down. Um, the nature of our institutions often make it, you know, when we think about mergers in uh, businesses in general, they often seem to be able to move more swiftly than it might be easy to think about combining what are fundamentally different uh, institutions, which is kind of interesting because sometimes businesses bring very, very different products to market, and yet they merge relatively quickly. Here we have very similar products, but maybe it's the similarity that makes the the transition different. Joey King also talked about the president of Lyon College um, about the challenge that we have in even having the conversation about mergers. You know, a president, he said, who comes to a board and says, let's let's talk. We don't we don't have to say we're on this path, but let's talk about the possibilities of merger. Who might we be better serving our mission with if we join together? And he said, you know, the president does that and and the president might as well have just introduced the discussion of who should our new president be? Um you know, and he and I talked about, you know, do, do we need just a regular schedule with the trustees? Like every 10 years, we will talk about the merger thing so that we can 
separate the notion that merger means weakness, merger means trouble. And just, no, merger is just because it's, it's that time we're going to talk again about what are the opportunities that are out there? How might our mission be served if we chose, chose to merge? So, you know, in, in past decades, if you go back, um, you know, really starting around 1950, to the very, very recent past, we just see more and more and more enrollments in higher ed. And I think it becomes kind of understandable then why everybody in higher ed thinks if you're talking about reducing the numbers of students, if you're talking about merger, there must be something wrong with you. Some, something's wrong, and that's the only reason why this would occur. I, I think we have to get our heads around the possibility that in the new environment, that's not so, that it might be a, a position of strength to say we are going to contract, or it might be a, a position of strength to say, we are going to merge. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know quite how we, how we get that change in mindset, but it feels like in coming years, if we don't, the risk is that we'll actually lose more institutions because they could have survived together, but they waited way too long. Um, and, and often we see that mergers in higher ed aren't really mergers, they're acquisitions. Um, they're, they're very lopsided with one institution basically saying, well, you have enough of an endowment there to make it worth it for us to, to take on your, your facilities. Those aren't real mergers. Those are just um, mopping up. It's a closure by another name. And, you know, can we get real mergers where we really do make both institutions better? That can only happen, I think, if we start the conversation a little earlier. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think... It- the inability to think about it proactively and strategically leads you into something that's much more like a an acquisition of distressed assets rather than right, a, right. something that really strengthens the mission of both institutions. I, I thought in, in many ways the most surprising, interesting example of, of the approaches um, in the book that was the UIUC taking out an insurance policy on international yes. enrollment. Um, I, I was wondering who wrote the policy, and, and obviously it was very foresighted of them, but but I was really curious about that as as a, someone who used to oversee international for Rutgers. That, that's a, it's obviously a huge vulnerability, but, but to be thinking about it in that way was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, at the time it was a curiosity, right? And now it looks prescient. So... Um... But I think this is often the, I, when when things become an emerging uh, element, we often because they were small in the past fail to recognize when they become big. And so I think what was going on there was Illinois was recognizing that hey, this has become a such a big thing. We face risks that we didn't face before when international students were just a small additional revenue stream, and it was you know brought a little extra diversity and it, great things that international students bring. If it's just that, we're not really worried about risks in the same way. And when you one day wake up and realize, wow, this program has grown to be such an important part of our our institution that if we lost it, we'd be in deep trouble. And I think a, a lot of institutions are realizing that we were in Illinois' situation. We just didn't realize it. That, sure, they were a minority of our student body, but they were such a critical minority that we had exposed ourselves to risks. And okay, right now it's travel risks due to a virus, but there are all sorts of political risks. There are competitive risks with uh, China and India and Canada, the UK, Australia, uh, creating institutions and growing institutions to compete with us. We need to be, you know, I think we do need to continue to think, how do we reach out to international students? But we need to recognize we are in a highly competitive environment that means that we got some work to do there. And I think we already saw in the Open Doors uh, report from the IEE 
prior to the pandemic, we were already on a four or five year slide in terms of international student new enrollments. And I'm not sure that everybody had quite really focused on, hey, it's a new normal. And, it, and the slide starts before Trump. So it's not a Trump administration thing, though the Trump administration certainly did no favors to international student recruitment. But I think if we just think, oh, well, now that President Biden is office, he'll reverse those regulatory changes and all will be good. I think that's really misreading the data. The world is a way more competitive place for international students. China obviously has some long-term trending issues that might make that a, a risky place. We need to work this problem far more intentionally. And I think Illinois was recognizing that, that, hey, this is, this is a big deal. This international students isn't some side venture. This is uh, core to who we are at this point, and we need to be prepared for that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And certainly Canada, Australia, the UK, they've all benefited hugely from, from what we yep. saw in the US over the last few years. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the policy implications of your work. One of the things that, that you know really strikes me because a lot of the institutions that are in our athletic conference and whatnot, but, but, but also more generally in the country, you know, it points to small rural private institutions as being those that are are really challenged, particularly if they're in the parts of the country that have, have the biggest demographic declines. And yet, when, when I look at those institutions, I think of them many ways as what a lot of those communities went through when the, the steel mill or the large manufacturer that was the lifeblood of their town closed. Right now, for a lot of these places, they're you know the the health of their entire community literally in terms of not just jobs but quality of culture quality of place all of those things is tied to that institution and so i think about the potential loss of those as beyond the students and the alum base and the faculty but but whole communities being impacted and so i'm curious if you've thought about that in terms of what 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 do how do we think about whether we allow them all to fail if they can't just make it, or right. are there other arguments for supporting them? You know, I, I think I've, I've had conversations with legislators on on the public side of it, but the public conversation makes clear exactly what you're saying that it's not just it's not a public institution issue; it's an institution issue. Um, so, in the public side, you know, the question is, well, if there aren't as many students, should we just close down a bunch of campuses because we don't need those campuses? And you say, well, you know, if only life were so simple. Uh, yes. The number of seats per student is an important thing to think about. We have to be good stewards of, of public finance, but uh, distance travel to get to an institution matters. We know that uh, two-year college attendees often travel, you know, the median is less than 20 miles from their high school to their, their two-year institution of attendance. So if you close these institutions, will they just not go to college? Are you restricting access? And then as you point out, uh, the the entire town's lifeblood, the economic development aspects are large. And uh, some have pointed out to me that in many of these places, the president of that institution also provides you know, real ballast for education leadership in the community as a whole. They're, they're a resource for the K-12 system. So you lose the educational leadership for your K-12 system, and now we have some other problems to contend with. So I think it's really short-sighted to say, well, if the number of students is lower, that alone should tell us that we should contract a bunch of institutions. But now what do we do about the privates? And I think that that is a really challenging problem. I think we are, you know, unfortunately in a case where there's going to be competition within the educational sector with the public folks saying you should do nothing for the privates because we are really struggling and you should put all of your public dollars toward public institutions. Um, 
you know, and okay, I'm biased because I'm at a private institution, but I, I think that's I think that's misguided because as you point out, the private institutions are private in the sense that they aren't heavily dependent on the state dollars, but they are public institutions in the sense that they have all sorts of externalities and benefits to the public. And, you know, the state state grant aids, the tuition assistance grants and so on, in part recognize the important public function of private institutions. And as we go through this, I think there has to be a conversation about, are you really willing to watch all of your private institutions or a large number of them just close up? And are you willing to tell those communities you know, in essence, you, you're going to be a ghost town um, and, and everything else that goes with it. I, I think it really is a challenge. We see the same thing then with the policy questions about free college for all. Okay, what kind of free college for all? You know, in, in New York, the Excelsior program, a lot of the two-year colleges felt that it was tilted toward a four-year public, but notice it was public. And then in Tennessee Promise, it's a two-year uh, tilt. So we have within the public sector some jockeying around who gets the the incentive to drive the students their way. But of course, in both cases, you're sucking students out of the private sector. Um, and some of the work I've seen suggests that the public should be concerned about that redistribution of students because the private sector has higher retention rates. So if your real goal is that you want more people with college degrees, offering free college for all may increase the pipeline. And that seems like it would increase college graduates. But if it comes at a cost of redirecting students toward uh, less supportive environments, um, you may have the same or even fewer college graduates coming out the other end of the pipeline. And so I, I think I think we need to be really careful as a country as we have these conversations to think in a nuanced way that recognizes, that, again, that we have a, a wonderful diversity of higher ed. And if we craft these policies in the wrong way, we might contribute to the death of entire sectors um, and, and not actually get what we thought we were paying for in the first place. Yeah, I, I was led right into the next question, which was going to be sort of your assessment of the Biden administration's proposals that would mark a pretty radical change in how we think about student funding in higher ed. And interestingly, right, it has the three components, the $109 billion toward free two-year college, $80-plus billion to increase Pell grants, and then $60-plus billion to try to improve retention and graduation, which, as you noted, may be contradictory with some of that first element. So right. it, it's an interesting one, which I don't know if it has grappled with that issue of, well, if we bias the equation further toward public, what's it going to mean for these communities and these institutions? Um, exactly. I, I'm curious on those elements. And also in the book, you talk a little bit about the emergence of income share agreements and also thinking about you know other country systems like Australia, the UK, where they have income you know, a very streamlined, low bureaucracy way of doing income contingent repayment rather than our loan system. As you think about all of those elements, have you come to conclusions on what you think would be the best way to think about funding of the federal funding of students in higher ed going? Yeah, well, certainly on the on the uh, student debt side, I'm really persuaded by Susan Darnarski's work that the problem really isn't that we have a student debt problem. It's a misalignment between incomes and debts. That when you look at you know all the research, in fact, um, some uh, New York Federal Reserve Bank economists looked at this decision to take a gap year during the pandemic, and they said, "Wow, that was a really expensive decision for some students because higher ed has a 14% implicit return during normal times." During the pandemic, when job opportunities were reduced, 
that implicit rate of return they estimate jumped to 17%. And so students were losing $90,000 in lifetime income by taking a year off and delaying their, their entry ultimately four years later into the job market with a degree. With, with higher ed having such strong returns, it really isn't a problem that, gee, graduating with $30,000 for a world-class education is too much debt. I mean, you know, I often tell my students here at Carleton, look, when you buy your first house, all of a sudden you're going to lose sight of your student loans. You won't even know where they are. You'll be so underneath the mortgage debt. It, you are so empowered coming out of an institution like yours or mine. Um, in ways to change the world because you've been empowered to support yourself well. The problem with student loan debt is that that isn't true for everybody. They're the heterogeneous case. The, the student who has some college, no degree. They got the debt, but they don't have the earning power. Um, or the student who, for whatever reason, happens upon you know a hard, a hard job path road. So they end up having the debt, but they don't have the capacity to repay. And that's actually not that big a problem to solve. And so Dynarski has been really agitating. Can we in the US make as the default what other countries have come upon, which is just, you know, you're going to repay your loans over 25 years. If at that time you haven't paid your debts enough, it's, it's over. And if you earn more, yeah, you're going to pay a little bit more, um, but relatively modest more because you know, we don't need that much redistribution. And instead, we're having conversations about, you know, maybe a $1.5 trillion loan forgiveness. And I think, boy, that's really, really, really regressive. Um, the, the people who have the biggest loans typically have the bigger incomes. Um, high school graduates who don't go to college have the lowest incomes, and they're not going to be eligible for any of this. You know, you mentioned the Pell Grants. You know, again, I, I'm at a private institution, so I'll just acknowledge the bias. But if I think about how could you, how could you expand access and to, to higher ed, expand the Pell Grant program, it'll cost you a lot, lot less than some of these large loan forgiveness programs they're talking about. So, you know, as far as the financing goes, you know, I, I really do hope we'll be very careful here not to just go with the emotion of the moment um, and the big numbers, you know, $1.6 trillion, that's a huge number. Uh, yeah, I, I understand where it's coming from, but we have to be more careful with our dollars in order not to really disadvantage the lowest income in favor of the highest income. And ultimately, I think we're, we're also going to do a much better job of expanding access if we do it right rather than doing it, um, I don't know, emotionally. Yeah, well, that, that's a very thoughtful answer. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times already this week the latest CDC numbers about demographics and this, I think, six-year running that we're seeing this this decline in the U.S. In, in your work, have have you looked at any of the countries? Japan is probably the most notable case, but South Korea, Italy, others, where you've seen really sustained long-term demographic decline and its implications. And is that something you think the U.S. is heading toward, or is this going to be another cycle, just maybe a slightly longer one? I think most of the people that, so I'll first say that, you know, it's, it's a hard question to what happens next, right? So I've answered much easier questions. Let's look at the babies that have been born and let's just kind of track, project out what would college attendance look like. Whereas demographers grapple with that question you're asking of what happens next. From what I've heard, most people feel that we should really not view the present as the anomaly. The United States having fertility rates above the replacement rate in 2007 is the anomaly. Europe, uh, Russia, as you noted, East Asia, developed countries around the world, Canada, have had low fertility rates with the exception of the U.S. So what we're experiencing now is a reversion to the general trend, not a deviation from it, which makes it you know, difficult to think that we're going to see 
a return to 2007 fertility conditions. Also, if you break down what causes fertility, um, we know that, for instance, religiously uh, committed families are more likely to have large families. And we know that the trends are toward more secularization in the United States. We know that high incomes, especially in educations among women, are associated with lower fertility rates. And the trends are toward higher incomes and higher educations for women in the United States. So there are a lot of other factors that also seem to support um, the sustained lower fertility moment. So I I think we have to grapple with this is the new normal. And and there are a lot of reasons to be concerned about that. Um, yes, higher ed is concerned. Um, economists also point out, growth theorists, that there's good theoretical and empirical reason to think that the size of your economy, the number of people, contributes to idea creation. And idea creation is the source of ultimately growth in the economy. So do we have to also anticipate, you know, not immediately, because when we have um, smaller cohorts entering the labor force, they're being mixed in with many cohorts. But if you, if you look out 50 years, if we continue with this low fertility and we have a smaller population than we otherwise have, do we also have to anticipate slower growth rates? Um, and of course, all of us in higher ed recognize that you know, there's, there's this balance between tuition increases and what's going on in the economy as a whole. So if the economy as a whole is growing more slowly, we can't be increasing our, our tuition rates as fast. Now, maybe there won't be as much pressure that way because wages aren't rising as quickly in that world outside of academia. And so professors and staff don't need to receive raises that are quite so much, but it's certainly not a world that's very um, happy to think about. So I think, um, you know, I think environmentalists often emphasize the, the carrying capacity of the earth and so are more prone to look at lower fertility as a good thing. Um, and I, I can see the arguments they're making, but against those positives, we have an awful lot of uh, some concerns, uh, whether we're talking about just the transition, which might be what we're grappling with now in higher ed, or also the long-term stasis of lower population levels. Yeah, and I would just throw in there, I, I think the other big element, as you know, the, the population gets driven by birth rate, but also immigration. And you know, one of yes. the other things coming with environment, right, is we're going to see tens of millions of people displaced if we could figure out good immigration policies to replace the loss of birth with some, you know, high achieving and, and, and you know, a more diverse population could, could be a win-win in, in terms of dealing with that aspect. I agree. I, I saw a recent um, paper with somebody arguing, well, you can't count on immigration because the world population is also going through something similar to what the U.S. is going, even in developing countries. As they become developed, they're also seeing declines in fertility. Um, so I think the United Nations now is anticipating that we'll reach peak uh, population in something like 2064, and maybe COVID will move that up to 2054. The the reason I don't necessarily buy that is the United States is in a uniquely strong position. Immigrants want to come here. So it may be true that the rest of the world is also going to struggle with lower uh, population. But in some sense, we don't. That, that's a choice for us. If we would open our borders, um, hopefully, and, and I understand in thoughtful ways, thinking about, okay, so how do we do this well? We actually do have the potential to say we don't need to produce new children here to maintain the population. So I think you're exactly right that... Um, Right now, our immigration debate seems to be focused on a very narrow set of issues compared to what might be a more interesting conversation about the many ways that both immigration can help us, but also the different ways we might craft immigration policy. I just wanted to wrap up by asking you about uh, your, your current projects and future work. I, I understand you've been working on uh, looking at economists in liberal arts colleges and, and their careers. Could you say share a little bit about what, what you're learning from that? It's obviously of personal interest yeah. for me in leading one, but 
So, I mean, this really came out of a problem that I have as a senior faculty member, right? I get tenure files and now I have to figure out what do I make of this? Um, how do I situate my colleagues' scholarly output uh, with the field? And I realized that while output at research-focused institutions has been studied pretty extensively, there are only a few papers. There are some good ones, a few papers that look at output at liberal arts colleges. And a lot of those have focused on uh, output at the departmental level and output at a particular point in time, say over the last six years, how much output. And I'm really kind of interested in the life cycle problem because I'm trying to think about that that colleague who's at year six, and I'm trying to figure out how does this level of productivity sit within the broader uh, context. Um, I, of course, hear from my junior colleagues that the bar has been rising and rising, the professionalization of the field. Is this true? I don't know. Um, so I've been collecting data along with several colleagues here at Carleton on the research output um, by, by career year, basically. And we've been trying to analyze what's going on. And I think we are finding that there is some evidence, especially at more selective institutions, that there has been a rising bar. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of the, the professionalization of the field seems to be also happening with older cohorts and maybe not, you know, if it's a tenure bar issue, you'd expect to see it in the left tail that we're just truncating at a different point. Um, but we're actually seeing growth in the right tail, which suggests something slightly different. And I'm actually a bit ambivalent about it because I think, you know, institutions like yours and mine are not, in, in our missions, intended to be mini versions of, say, Rutgers or the University of Chicago. They have a different, distinct mission. And again, I think we will do fine if we fulfill that mission. And I worry a little bit when I see the shift in the nature of the work that professors at our institutions like ours do. Um, are we losing sight of the primary teaching function? Obviously, scholarship facilitates high-quality teaching, and so there's a complementarity. But that complementarity presumably has diminishing returns that set in pretty quickly. And at some point, you say, uh, are, are we are we overemphasizing the research part of our professional lives to the detriment of our students? Because there is a trade-off in time. Um, so we're starting to see that. We've also been trying to look at um, the difference between econ lit, uh, that is sort of the within the, the journals that the field recognizes as these are economics journals versus non-econ lit publications. I'm not sure that we see the big rise in non-econ lit publications that you would expect, given some of the stories that we tell about how the intersections of fields and dis interdisciplinary work is becoming ever more so important. Maybe it is more important, but it's not being clearly evidenced by changing patterns of economists in their publications. So it's been fun to just play with that data and see um, to see how how our field really does work across across the life cycle. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated about it because one of the things we stress in in a sort of broader definition of scholarship is thinking about encouraging faculty to publish with uh, students. And, and to do work in that way, I think that historically has been a lot harder in a field like economics than in some of the sciences or other disciplines. But I wonder if even in like conference presentations or other things, if there's any way to capture that or if that turns up in the data. So, so it doesn't turn up in our data. My co-authors and I have talked about this as an interesting follow-up question, but probably we would need to collect data in a different way. Because while some of our colleagues indicate student co-authors or co-presenters very clearly on their CVs, others don't. And so, you know, we're trying to think, how would you get that data? But it seems like a very important question because you're absolutely right that student co-authorship um, is one of the richest ways that we experience the this close student-faculty engagement. And so it would be really nice to be able to measure, is this changing over time? Um, 
if it is changing, it would be even cool to keep track, you know, macroeconomics versus microeconomists. What are the natures of the questions? Um, so I do have a student working with me as a co-author on this particular project, um, but it lended itself really nicely to that, right? There's, sure. there's a lot of just recording. We got to get these CVs and then record all the data. And then we're just going to do, you know, some basic statistics, looking at the distributions and things like that. Perfect kind of uh, problem for an undergraduate co-author. Whereas I think about some of my macroeconomist colleagues who are doing DSGE model estimation. You're like, okay, I, I don't know how you get a student as a co-author on that. That seems really hard. So I would be really interested in following up on that question you're asking. Well, Nathan, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. A gr great chance to get to know you through this and, and excited for following your future work, but thank you for taking the time to join us. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.